Here's one thing I know about every single person in this room. On the outside, you look sane and normal. But on the inside, there are like weird, quirky thoughts you have uh, going on that no one actually gets to see. I will go, I will share one of mine, and you tell me if anybody else actually does this. So uh, the other day, I'm putting the garage door down, and then I realize what I typically do, and I've been doing this for as long as I can remember, I will hit the button to put the garage door down, go in, and then shut the door, but then I will go and open the door back up, because I have to watch the door go all the way down. Am I the only one that does this? Raise your hand if you do this. Raise your hand. Look around. I am not crazy. Look at this. And why do we do this? Because some Jason Bourne ninja is outside of our house just looking to roll underneath the door at the last second and come in and get us all. And we are the only sane ones in the family that watch the door. Sorry about that. Anyway, so I guarantee that you have little things that you do as well. Like if we followed you around with a camera, what sort of odd, quirky, weird, interesting things would we find you doing? Now, the thing that we all have in common isn't that we do these weird kind of things. Um, It's that the Bible says that our brains, our cognitive processes, are fundamentally broken. That on the outside of every single person you lock eyes with, you're like, ah, that's a normal person. But on the inside, all of us, without without exception, all of us, our brains are broken. Let me tell you why that happened. Adam and Eve sinned. God came and he said, what is this that you have done? And then he described all of the things that would happen as a result of human sin. There would be a disruption of their relationship with God, a disruption in their relationship with one another. In fact, he uses the word pain three times. He's like, when you leave now my protection and blessing, it is going to go very, very poorly for you. Now, one overlooked aspect of human beings needing to be saved, the Bible uses this term sozo, to be saved, which is a uh, corollary to the Old Testament word shalom, of, of experiencing wholeness and peace, that when we make Jesus the leader and forgive our lives, he makes us whole again. Now, we all agree that our souls need to be saved, and what I would like to talk about today is that our brains need to be saved. Our cognitive processes need to be redeemed and need to be made whole. That we are to learn how to love the Lord our God with what? All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That because of what happened originally with Adam and Eve and then every single person since, you and I, our brains, are not working correctly. They're simply not working correctly. Lean over to the person next to you and say, I knew it, your brain is fundamentally flawed. You do that? Say, I knew it. I knew there was something wrong. Now, um, if you've been here in the fall, we've talked a little bit about how in the first century, people that struggled with mental illness were often lumped with people who suffered from demon possession, which is the real. But people who suffered from mental issues were lumped together 
altogether. In fact, it happened to Jesus. One time he moved, well, when he moved from Nazareth to the city of Capernaum on the north side of Galilee, his family came in mass to come and hogtie him and take him back home. It said that they came to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And then literally the next verse, Mark said, teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebub. In other words, he's out of his mind, he's possessed by Beelzebub. What Mark is saying is if you are mentally ill, it's because a demon is messing with your mind. Now, if you're part of Jesus' family, if you're his younger brother and he's giving you purple nurples in the middle of your teenage years, and all of a sudden, one day, he starts describing himself as the great I am, you're like, yeah, the guy's gone nuts. Okay, let's be honest here. He's gone nuts. But that does not necessarily mean that he was actually possessed. In a few occasions, there were people who were possessed and they were easily to re- They were very easy to recognize. These were the people that wore Steelers jerseys and believed the Steelers were getting to the Super Bowl. These are possessed people. But in the vast majority of instances, it was just people who were experiencing an incredible amount of mental anguish. You, at some point, would have been considered demon-possessed. When I did genealogy research for our family, I found uh, my great-great-grandmother, Sarah Jones. Um, uh, I talked to our oldest living relative, who from a very young, when she was a very young child, she said, I remember her. She would dress in all black, and she would sit on the porch, and she would just be lost in her own thoughts. Well, I did some more genealogy research and discovered that Sarah actually lost six children I'm talking she gave birth to the children, and between the ages of six days and three years, lost six children. Have that happened to you? You would dress in all black and sit on the porch by yourself, too. In the first century, she would have been considered mentally ill. A demon is messing with her mind. But you and I both know, and Jesus knew, these were just simply people who were suffering great deals, great deal of emotional anguish. Now, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, it said that he had compassion on a whole group of people like this. And it said that news about him spread all throughout Syria, and people brought to him people with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, and the demon-possessed. People who mentally were struggling. In fact, the 12 disciples were given The authority, it says, to drive out impure spirits. Now, sometimes that actually referred to someone who was experiencing demonic oppression, but oftentimes it referred to the kind of pain that you're going through right now, that you're struggling with, that you feel trapped by. So what I want to do is we're finishing up the series today called The Best Christmas Ever. And since the holidays can be great and simultaneously difficult... What I want to do is I want to talk about a very practical way that you can pull yourself out of depression and anxiety. I want to talk about how you can stop the spiraling downward. I don't know if you saw a recent report for the Centers for Disease Control. Um, You know, normally, Americans keep getting older. The life expectancy keeps getting greater and greater and greater, that we're going to live longer and longer. This year, it actually went down. 
And the reason it went down is because in 2017, there were 70,000 people that took their lives. Um, A while ago, I wrote an article called, A Note for Anyone Who Has Ever Thought About Suicide Like Me. And I shared how my life up to that point had felt like the first few lines of Dante's Inferno, where, he, where Dante said, midway through my life's journey, I found myself astray in a dark wood, and the road out had been wholly lost. And I wasn't suicidal. I just shared, man, I have gone through some difficult times. Now, here's the thing. Every single person in this room is on a spectrum. And the spectrum goes from doing fine to discouraged to ruminating, like you can't stop thinking about what's going on, to despair, to numbness. Some of you have been numb for so long, you just think that's normal. And what I want to talk about is, I want to talk about how Jesus came to make us whole, and how it's normal, we're all broken mentally, and how he comes and he makes us whole. Now, the reason I shared that about the article is I have my website is hooked up to analytics, and I don't know specifically the exact, the exact people that read it, but I know the demographics of the people that read it. And when I wrote that article, within the next four months, that article had been read by thousands of kids between 13 and 17 years old. I just want you to think about that for a second. I'm talking about in our immediate 15-mile area. Thousands of kids between 13 and 17 read that article about being suicidal. That ought to be frightening. And so what I want to do is I'm going to give you a very practical tool that will help not only you, but that you can keep in your hip pocket and that you can use this to help other people that you're going to minister to as a disciple of Jesus. So here we go. Now to get us started, I want to tell you about a guy you may not have heard of, or you may have. His name is Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese from Vienna, Austria, a Viennese psychiatrist that when Nazi Germany came over and overrun the whole area, he was thrown into a concentration camp, actually two of them, because he was Jewish, they threw him in. His whole family's killed, all of his extended family members, but he survived. He, when he got out, um, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And after the Allies liberated the concentration camps, he went to work in the Viennese hospital system where they had a major problem, obviously, with suicide, grappling with the effects of what happened uh, during the war. Frankel put together a therapeutic process to help people get out of despair and depression that began in the concentration camps And actually, he refined in the hospital system, and Frankel took the suicide rate from whatever it was to zero. And his process was very easy. And so I want you to write this down. There were three things that he did. The first thing was this. First, he had people identify a project that they could work on, that if they didn't work on it, somebody would suffer. That you and I, when we go through something and we begin to ruminate and think on it, we're just thinking about everything that we've gone through. And undoubtedly, what you have gone through is probably bad or terrible. You don't want to make light of that at all. 
But what Frankel would say is that you have to find a reason to get up in the morning, and just getting better is not a good enough reason. (coughs) What Frankel would say is that a person who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears towards a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw his life away. He knows the why for his existence and he will be able and will be able to bear almost any how. So my question to you is, what person or what issue do you know of that these people are suffering more than you're suffering right now and that you have the ability to step up and do something about it, but you're not stepping up to do something about it because you are wallowing in your despair. You are ruminating and continuing to think how bad it is for you. Meanwhile, there are these other people who are suffering that you can do something about it. Frankel would tell his patients, I want you to make a list of these people and issues, and I want you to come back next week, and we're going to pick one. And they would say, well, which one are we going to pick? He said, it doesn't matter. You just need to find something or someone that you care deeply about that's going to suffer, that if you keep ruminating in your despair, they're going to continue to suffer. And you have a moral obligation to step up. Um, What is that for you? What is that, that thing that when we all begin to have a pity party for ourselves and talk about how our life is difficult and it's more difficult than all of these other people, what is that thing that we know that we can solve that if we don't solve it, quite frankly, we are being selfish? That's the first thing Frankel did. The second thing that Frankel did is he had people who were depressed rewrite their story so that it presented a redemptive perspective on their suffering. He would talk to people who had suffered unimaginable things, and what he would do is he would have them rewrite their story. Now, all of us have had painful things happen to us in life. And when something painful happens, let's be honest, it's painful. You don't want to minimize it at all. It was terrible. It was bad. Your parents split. That's just awful. You went through a divorce. Painful. It's the worst. There's something you'd like to change about yourself, but you can't. That's painful. The Holocaust is painful. But what is a redemptive perspective on the Holocaust? And so basically what Frankel would do is he would have them rewrite their stories by saying, okay, this is a really terrible thing, but on the other side of this terrible thing is something positive. So in the worst possible situation, in the concentration camps, someone came to Frankel and they asked him, how could you possibly find a redemptive perspective on what's happening to us in this concentration camp? How could you possibly find something redemptive about this? And Frankel said, well, let's think about this. It's obviously a terrible thing. It's obvious we're going to die in here. But if you commit suicide, and this was a problem because what people would do is that in the concentration camps, there were electrified fences all the way around. And what they would do is they would just run into the fence. He said, it's obviously terrible. It's obvious that we're probably going to die. 
but if you commit suicide, you will rob yourself of an amazing opportunity. And the guy was like, what amazing opportunity? And Frankel said, if you let them kill you, your death will serve a greater purpose because it will teach the world how evil they are. Even not killing yourself, but letting them kill you in the worst possible situation will serve a redemptive purpose. And the man's spirit immediately rose because now he had dignity, had a purpose. And my question to you is, what is that for you? You think about the thing that happened to you or the things that are happening to you. Yes, it's bad. Yes. But here's what I want you to do. Your story is, this bad thing happened. And now what I want you to do is I want you to rewrite it by saying, this bad thing happened so that. So that what? What positive thing can come as a result of this bad thing happening to you? That's where our mental processes, the result of the fall of the universe, of our sinful nature, is to begin to pile in on ourselves and woe is me and despair and rumination and ultimately because of our self-centeredness that we will accumulate all of the energy around us and continue to go inward and inward and inward. And the redemptive thing that happens, the healing of our brain comes when we say, this happened, no, 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 not because I'm being singled out, but so that. There's someone that's going to be helped as a result of this. Um, Donald Miller, the author, for instance, talks about how when his dad split as a kid, they had to stand in line for government cheese. They didn't have any money, so his mom, in order to get their teeth fixed, they would go to the dental school and they would have dental students practice on their teeth. That's how poor they were. He talked about how in his 20s he went through a woe-is-me phase. And then he realized, you know what, this happened to me, so that. And he wrote a book about how hard it is to grow up without a dad. And he had 10,000 of those books delivered into the prisons and put into the hands of men who grew up without a dad. This happened, so that. One businessman lost everything in one investment. Everything. And he looked in the mirror after reading Frankel's story, he looked in the mirror and said, this is the best day of your life and you know it. Think about those of you who are businessmen and women. You've worked your whole lives building up business. Imagine, gone like that. What are you going to do? Oh, you're going to get depressed, man. You're just going to lose it. You're going to go inward. You're going to start, I mean, just, or you can look in the mirror and say, this is the best day of your life and you know it. This happened so that this businessman that I'm talking about turned around, lost everything, looked in the mirror. This is the best day of your life, and you know it. And now today is earning as much every single month as he lost in that entire investment, every single month, because he took control of his finances and stopped taking bad advice from people. This is the best thing that's ever happened to you, and you know it. That doesn't happen by accident. That takes strength. Now, here's the third thing that Frankel did, is that Frankel had people join a community of people committed to learning how to love one another unconditionally. 
as they worked on a project to relieve someone else's suffering. That Frankel said every single person is created to be in community with people and to take your mask off and to be in authentic relationships with one another, but your group cannot be existing just so that you can do that. While you're working on your relationships, you're also working on a project. And so logotherapy that Viktor Frankl would call it is very simple. If you want to pull yourself out of depression, your first reaction can't be, I need a pharmacological solution to this. Because you're not fixing anything. Now, the Bible's not opposed to that at all. But it can't be the first thing you do. There has to be an acknowledgement that our brains are fundamentally broken and they have to be rewired. And what Frankel would say is the first thing you need to do is you need to find a project you need to work on. And number two, you need a redemptive perspective on your suffering. And number three, you need close, unconditional relationships who accept you as you are, as you work on a project together. Now, for those of you who are Christians, undoubtedly you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, this sounds awfully familiar. And you're right. This is not something that Frankel came up with on his own out of the air. This is what Jesus called us to do. In Matthew chapter 4, he called people to follow him. And then he brought them along as they went out and they healed the suffering of people. Then, as that's happening, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Does anybody know that, how that begins? Blessed are you when you are mourning. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. In other words, you need to rewrite your story from a redemptive perspective. And then later on, it says in Matthew chapter 10, he called the 12 to come together and form a group so that they could learn to love one another and continue to work on a project. This is simply what Jesus has called us to do. Logotherapy, finding meaning in our pain and suffering, is what Christ has called us to do. And so I simply want to ask you, for those of you who are going through a difficult time right now, what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you, first and foremost, to not be ashamed of what you're going through. I want you to understand that God sees what you're going through. He understands how painful it is. But what he wants you to do is he wants you to find a greater purpose for what you are going through and to not waste that pain. This happened so that. Let's pray. God, help us to see our lives from your perspective. Help us to see our lives in the larger story of redemption. It is so easy to just continue to focus on the pain that we experience. It's so easy and it's so natural because it's who we are as fundamentally broken people. But as redeemed people, you call us to think beyond ourselves. Lift up our gaze for the people who are hurting, for the people who are suffering, for the people who can't see beyond. Help us to see those who are suffering more than us. Help us, God, to be drawn into a community 
where we can love one another unconditionally and help us together to rewrite our stories as we're helping to rewrite the stories of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.